Before history is written, it's played. Before it's frozen in time, it's fought one shift at a time. Before it's etched in silver, it's carved in ice. What happens next will last forever. The Stanley Cup Final on ABC and ESPN Plus begins Saturday. Hello, everyone. Welcome to another edition of Bannering the Blue Shirts. I'm Tom Ertz, Jr. As always, I'm joined by Mike Murphy. How's it going, Mike? It's going good. And today, we're very happy to be joined by Shayna Goldman of Blue Shirt Banner, The Athletic, and uh, the Too Many Men podcast, and Hockey Graphs as well. How's it going, Shayna? It's going well. How's it going, Tom? I sound so, you made me sound so official on here. Well, you are very official. Tom is straight-laced. Tom's a business boy. Yeah, very business-like. I do these podcasts laying down in bed, um, essentially just defeated by the world. I'm in bed, too. I'm sitting in bed. Because <laughs> my desk is covered in um, fabric and things. But Tom, Tom is the organized masks, one. by the way, everyone. And I, I've worn them, and uh, I can breathe through a mask. Did you guys know you can breathe through masks? You know, you can do a lot in a mask, and it doesn't impede your day. It just, you know, huh? adds some safe features, and, uh, you know, it's a nice fashion accessory. Huh. I have one to match, like, every outfit now. And if you find yourself needing a mask, you can go to Shayna's uh, Twitter feed and find a link to her Etsy. And uh, it, it's very easy to do so. A bunch of different colors and styles and fabrics, and it's, 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 it's rocking and rolling. You guys, your checks are in the mail. And Tom, your masks are about to be in the mail tomorrow. Oh, very good. Finish the charcoal today, and your striped one is already done. Well, thank you very much. I can hear your, can hear your scissors. Thank you. Away, You're very on brand with your, I don't know, what do you call it? Seamstresses, seamery, tailory. Sewing? You know, a, ha- a haberdasher is one who makes hats. I'm not sure what you call one who makes a mask. Um, amateur sewer, I would say. There you go. So what's happened, Tom, in Rangers World, other than Adam Fox isn't a Calder finalist, and I want to break something, and Artemi Panarin is a finalist for something? Yeah, I mean... Uh... I was kind of surprised that Fox wasn't... I Well, I'll say this. I'm surprised in one sense and not surprised in another. Um, I'm surprised that all of the Calder finalists were from the Western Conference. I guess just there was no pe- no attention paid to, to the Eastern Conference this year. Um, and I, I feel like it was a thing where a lot of people were like, oh, Kale McCarr or Quinn Hughes, and it was just this one-two all year long and 
they figured, well, we don't want to have three defenders as the finalists, so let's pick a forward. And nothing against Dominic Kubalik, um, who had a really fine season, and the Blackhawks pretty much stole um, from from the LA Kings. But like Adam Fox had a really good season, and I think that um, he deserved the recognition. But you know what? Fuck it. He doesn't get the Calder. He's just gonna have to go uh, win a Norris eventually. So some motivation for for the Harvard boy. Um, and Shayna, you made a lot of good points in, in your article today. What was your your thoughts on the news? My article today. Wow, that sounds kind of foreign to me. Um, so. My thoughts would be that, like, honest to God, I know, like, we are biased because we obviously cover the Rangers, but... Never. I, never. Adam Fox legitimately was good this year, and I think, I think had... There there were two other players that could have been in it had they stayed healthy, and I think John Marino should have gotten a Calder nod, but 100% would have been a snub had he stayed healthy, and uh, Elvis, Merz Lincolns, he, he was like, if... Both of them were healthy. I would, I would maybe say it could have been Elvis, John Marino, McCarr would have been a fair ballot if you're leaving off Fox. Um, and it, it really isn't to dismiss anything Kubelik or Hughes have done, but you know Kubelik had 30 goals. That's super impressive, and I think it was 47 points in 68 games, and I might be off on that. And he had 25 even strength goals. Like it's nothing to shrug at. And Quinn Hughes was very good too. I think he had 53 points, and he averaged a lot of ice time. And that's that's kind of like where um, Fox separates from the other two. It's minutes and role, and it's uh, you know power play usage right there. Like obviously he barely played on the first power play unit, and I don't think him not staying on the power play unit was even something that was against his play because he was successful there. And I think I like him. I know I've said it before. I like him on the power play unit that only has one defenseman because you know he can hold a blue line really well, and he is a good puck mover. So. I won't be surprised if he's, you know, a first power play defenseman next year. It has nothing to do with D'Angelo. It has nothing to do with Drew, but just has to do with Fox. And um, the other thing is minutes. He showed he earned more minutes. If anything, we were saying pretty much from the first month of the season, like, you know what? He could take for, you know, more minutes. He had very few points to open the season, and he was super quiet, and everyone might not have noticed just how good he was because he wasn't scoring. But, like, you got to look past that. Every underlying number was good off the bat, and we didn't expect him to be as good defensively. We knew he'd be good offensively. And then he just kicked ass as the season went on. He was so poised. He's so mature. He's so good at everything he did that he earned more minutes and could have been, honestly, based on the Rangers' defense, a top-paying defenseman. So you have to consider the quality of the competition, the quality of his teammates, you know, the team that he was on and their systems and their defensive flaws and the fact that he managed to do everything he did. Like, he was so damn good that he definitely should have not just gotten the Calder nod, but I think he's higher than a third seed on it. I would say if you had Makar and Fox as your one and two, you're doing something right. But, you know, what do I know? Well, it's perfect setup because as you were talking, it got the wheels turning and I wanted to pull up the tweet. It was from uh, Micah. Um, most common teammates this season, Kel McCarr, Ryan Graves, Quinn Hughes, Chris Tanev, Dominic Kubelik, Jonathan Taze, Adam Fox, Ryan Lindgren. And it just speaks to how much heavy lifting Adam Fox did. And 
one of the most common denominators this year, and I, I know people have mixed opinions on Wowies, withs and withouts and, and, and all that, but Fox was, was pulling people up. He was he was just making people so much better than they were to, to the point that Lindgren, who someone I would say surprised us this year, um, and, and some of it was Fox, but you know, Lind- Lindgren does deserve some credit um, that to end the season, Fox and Lindgren was the, like the, the pseudo first pair for the Rangers, which is something that you would have never seen. Um, and, and I think this was, very much a case where it was we have to look at points and obviously what McCarr did um, while missing some time this year impressive uh, Hughes le- being a rookie to lead in scoring um, I think it was they, there was a stat like he was like the third or, or fourth um, defender to do it I know Brian Leach his rookie year led scoring um, among rookies so that's something to point out but for me, if Fox gets just a smidge more power play time a game, because when you, you look at his production in the time that he was there, it was positive, but it's hard to make up that gap when you're, you're not getting the looks, which obviously understandable. Look at the personnel that the Rangers have, but it's something to consider next year, and, and it's something to consider if because of salary cap issues, which we'll get to a little bit later, um, force them to make somewhat of a, a decision on uh, Tony D'Angelo, for example. But um, before we move on to the next um, award nominee, did you have anything that you wanted to say about Fox, Mike? I feel like it just... They, Fox had, like, the wrong year and he was on the wrong team. Like, because, as Shana pointed out, the opportunity and deployment usage, if he had gotten power play one minute's especially his assists would have climbed and it would have put him more on par with where everyone else was just in terms of production and the wrong year like D hasn't won the Clark, the uh, the Calder since Ekblad in 2015 and you know you look back to last year you know there's Elias Pedersen and then you think back and before him it was Parcel and then Austin Matthews and before that it was Panarin, for God's sakes, and Ekblad. So, I don't know, but thinking about this this year's rookie class in terms of defenders is just bonkers. Like, it's... It, it, it was just the wrong team, wrong year, wrong position for Fox in terms of his chances of getting, uh, you know, a nod for the, for the Calder. And that's a big bummer, but the good news is it's just, you know, it's something to put on your resume it's something to put on your you know hall of fame ballot like the the real thing here is we know the rangers have something special in fox and that matters more yeah in in many ways when i think about it and not not to compare the situations at all but it it's sort of when you look at rangers history and like someone like brad park where he just had the unfortunate uh, situation of playing at the same time as Bobby Orr, so it was just not unable to get the the recognition because it's you're you're going up against him. So, um, still a great year for Fox. Um, you know, 
he's going to be someone very important. I'm very interested to see how he does in the play-in series, uh, especially someone who got a lot of rest and was adjusting to life in the NHL after um, coming out of college. So very, uh, very good stuff. And at least we do have one thing positive to talk about today in terms of award nominees. And uh, Artemi Panarin was named one of the finalists for the Ted Lindsay Award, um, which is voted on by the NHLPA as league's most outstanding player. Joining him was Nathan McKinnon and Leon Dreisaitl. And that's a trio that I don't think anyone is surprised about. And no one would be surprised about if next week we're, we're learning that they're the the heart uh, nominees, but um, I, I I think this was kind of a no brainer. I had my thoughts, and I still have my you know thoughts that there may be some writers who won't vote for Panarin for Hart because the Rangers aren't a true playoff team. But at least in this case, I, I would admit it's a no brainer for uh, the uh, Lindsay. Yeah, this is to me a. I feel like in terms of like the players, you know, having the say here instead of media, I like I like Panarin's odds for the Lindsay much more than the Hart. I mean, I, I think about, you know, the storyline is very easy for people like, oh, look what Dracidal did with McDavid Hurt and proving, you know, with an exclamation point, like, hey, he's not just a product. He's not just a byproduct of Connor McDavid. And there's also, I think, a lot of people who are really big on Nathan McKinnon for, you know, very good reasons. He's a really, really exceptional player and one of the best centers in the game. And, you know, if I was a general manager in this league, I would give anything to have Nathan McKinnon. Um, But I, you know, this is the sort of, like, acknowledgement that Panarin deserves. You know, we talked about it all year long, Tom, how... You know, expectations were really high, and all he did was shatter them. Um, I've been watching, specifically watching the Rangers and Carolina games from the regular season, and I just found myself before the show I was telling Tom, like, just shaking my head, like he just, he just does things that you shouldn't be able to do. Like, he'll win a foot race, he'll make a perfect pass from the corner after winning a puck battle in a foot race, and like. He'll make a perfect centering pass, and then Ryan Strom will bury a goal. And, you know, everyone is like, wow, Ryan Strom scores a goal. It's like everything that happened on that play had to do with Artemi Panarin. Um, and this isn't to drag Ryan Strom. It's just like, think about who Panarin played with. He played with Strom and Jesper Faust, and he did what he did this year. It's just unbelievable to me. I agree. Yeah. It's... Yeah. You go, Shana. Sorry. Sorry. Okay. I, I think, you know, you look at, you have to consider quality of your teammates. And, you know, it's not to say that they aren't quality teammates, but you look at the differential in talent and everyone will make the narrative that McDavid and Jarsettle didn't play together that much. And it's like, well, they did. And even when Jarsettle wasn't there, like that Oilers are such a top heavy team. They have a top six and that's all they fucking have. Like, like I don't even think you can arguably say that they have a top six though at times, but like I digress. Um, And not to... Dry Settle's playing with. And McKinnon, you look at the injuries Colorado had, and I would say that he has like a better case than Dry Settle because you need to look past just the scoring. You know, 
there were so many injuries. He didn't have Ranson at times. He didn't have Landis Gog at times. McCarr got hurt. Grubauer got hurt. And you look at everything that he did. But the playoff conversation is just a load of shit to me. Um, I know I've said it before, but like, if the team just misses the playoff by, by a hair and that player did a- absolutely everything in his power, was so valuable and lifted that team to put them into contention at all, that's value. If they're bottom feeders still, they're 28th in the league still, and that player had 100 points, I get it. Don't put him up for the heart. It is not a knock to that player and how valuable that they are, but I, I can understand it from that perspective, which isn't the case here. And I think the other half of it is, um, like, watch the game, you fucking nerds. Like, everybody wants to talk about how skilled a player is. Dreisaitl is incredibly skilled. Nathan McKinnon is incredibly skilled. But I don't think that you recognize just how good Panarin is until you watch him all the damn time. And that's something when there were doubters about his contract in the first place, you had to look at it and be like, have you legitimately watched him play? Not just a highlight here or there, but like watched him play an entire game or an entire season or his whole NHL career. There was something so impressive about everything that he did because he's, you know, solid defensively. He's so smart. He's so quick. He reacts. He protects the puck. He can hold on to it. He's so great at getting the puck back. He finds his teammates without even having to look. He just knows there's something so special about him as a player. This, you know, the word elite does get thrown around a lot, but he's an elite player. And we would say he's an elite playmaker for sure. There's no question. And I think this year he showed... He's much more than that because look what he can do when he shoots the puck. He was at his best in terms of frequency and accuracy with his shooting. And there's something to be said about that too. But I always like, I think it'll be, okay, if I'm a betting man, I will say that the Hart finalists are going to be the same as the Ted Lindsay finalists. And I think that makes it that much more interesting because you have two awards seeing you know talking about a player's value voted by two different parties those who play against him and with him versus those who just watch and analyze it and I do think that at times those that watch and analyze look at certain things instead of looking at the full picture and yes I'm calling out every traditional journalist out there but I mean you know if if you're doing this you just have to constantly try to get better and push the boundaries a little bit and that means looking past those boundaries of points and things like that so um I just I think it'll be super interesting if or when those are the same finalists and how the voting differs I look at this as this is 0506 all over again with um Yager missing out on the heart uh to Joe Thornton and obviously what Joe Thornton did that year, what was incredible, getting traded from Boston to San Jose and just completely tearing it up, um, you know, helped uh, you know Jonathan Chichu winning the Rock Richard that year, you know, sort of sort of helped out. Um, league scoring was dramatically up that year, rule changes and, and all of that, and I know the gap wasn't as the gap then in in um, for the Art Ross wasn't as big between Thornton and Yager as it is Dreisaitl and Panarin. But I see it, it, it that that's the way that it could go, where the players recognized Panarin was the most impactful, uh, most outstanding player this year, and the writers say that for Dreisaitl. I think it was something like maybe 11 or 12 games this year might be a little more 
in which Panarin did not register a point. But there were nights that he didn't score, didn't pick up an assist. But I don't think there were... I mean, and you, maybe you can count them on, on one hand, and that might be generous. Games where you're like, what's going on with Panarin? Where is Panarin? What What is going on? Because like you said, he was active on every shift. I think of his goal against the Sabres, stripping the puck from Darlene, taking it to the goal. I think of him setting up Zibanejad after taking the puck away from Evander Kane behind the goal line. I think of him in that, in that same game, getting the puck and then nutmegging uh, Aaron Dell. Um, he, he was just an animal, and elite is the exact way to put it, because while you would not say that he's an elite defensive player, for the type of game he plays, he brings elite level offense, when you factor in what he's also doing defensively, it, it's just impressive. There are not many players in the league that... Uh, are able to do that. It's it's why that there are only you know a select few players who are making more than ten million dollars a season, um, and I would agree with your bet on the Hart finalists. And I would be very interested to see um, how how the votes go out in terms of you know how close it is, and uh, we'll just have to wait and see. You fucking nerds! Sorry, that's a great quote. The, the Fuxbury 60 on our podcast skyrocketed with uh, with Shana returning to the show, and I, I very much... I just, I just have, like, a tendency to say bad words. It's okay. They're good so words. I, but Tom is so wholesome that he, he brings out a much more PG-13 mic more often than not. So Fair. Two of us now. Two foul-mouthed people, I think. Yes. Can I tell you? Fuck isn't even my favorite curse word. It's just I like hurtful. shit better. Shit's my favorite. Shit's a great word. Yeah, fuck just flows though. Like it. I would have thought. <laughs> I would have thought douchecock is your favorite. That's a good insult. That's like one of my favorite insults because like I I like that it makes someone. I like things that make people like think for a second. You know, like when someone's an asshole, when someone is a douchecock and you're driving and they do something stupid, like you could honk your horn and get mad. Or flip them off, and like Rich introduced this like great idea. He was like, "Put a thumbs up, up, you know, like give them a thumbs up." And if they're that stupid, <laughs> hit them with two thumbs up, or even smile at them when you do it. And it makes people double check, like double what double take, and look at you and be like, "The fuck is this person doing at me?" And it's like, "You goddamn idiot!" And you're sitting there at the two thumbs up or the one. It's like you walk away like laughing from it so you're not as angry or you're still angry but you just see that they're like dumbfounded which makes it that much better I like it. it's a little psychological warfare and it leaves you in a better mood than flipping the bird yes I'm big on I, I think asshole is a tremendous insult but I, I like saying things like you know bag of dicks or like shit face things like that I like I like the the ones I grew up with that aren't proven to be problematic now. I like fucker. I think that's a good Fuckers one. But really like, good. I feel like I don't have to be that mad for fucker. I can be like, you fucker, and it just is like a sarcastic one. But, um, or like, you fucking like fuck nerd. Face. Fuck face is good, because before the show, I told Tom and Shana that my cat Franklin, uh, we've been informed that he has, he needs a bit of a diet from the vet, so... We've been giving him less treats, and last night he knocked over his new 
little like Tupperware tub of treats and ate like a giant handful of treats. So I've been calling him a shit face and a fuck face all day. And yeah, it helps. It helps. You know that sort of language doesn't hurt anybody. It just gets it. You just release some pressure. I think it's good. Yeah. So are you saying it? like you're saying it now or are you doing it in that like sing-songy way that when you talk oh, yeah. to dogs that I'm like, oh, hey little shit face how you doing you yeah yeah you get you ruin your diet you piece of shit i love you yeah, yeah you little demon demon dog or i'll be like you little fucker to cone like Kona, i call her more name zuka call her an asshole all the time and like she's moody so it's like very easy but um or shit dog do you call her shit dog sometimes? Like when she rolls in a worm and she stinks. I'm like, you fucking shit dog. I don't like yell at her. Oh like if, if she does something really bad, I feel like I don't even like fling an insult at her. I just am like scolding her for doing something wrong. But like she doesn't do that much wrong. She's just kind of like moody sometimes. Um, Kona is this little demonic creature that does things that she knows is wrong. Like she's, she is like a really well-behaved dog. But she gets very, like, excited, and then she'll do mean things to Zook just to get Zook's attention. Like, she'll be like, Zook, let's go outside. She bites her neck to let her know, and it's like, and then she'll bark at Zook. If Zook does anything, she barks at her, and it's, like, not the same as her regular bark. It sounds meaner. So I definitely am like, you little fucker, you little demon dog. But, like, I don't feel like I get any harsher than, like, how my voice got right there. Like, it, I don't, I don't want to be, like, mean if she does something wrong. Maybe I'll say asshole sternly, but like eh, I'm not. I'm not gonna be like I. I don't know if I'm if I'm insulting a human, I'm gonna be ten times meaner than I ever would be to a dog. It's true, and I you never say it lovingly to another human. Yeah, you say it like sarcastically. I'm trying. I'd like. I'm racking my brain for like the worst thing my dogs have done that I. And I don't even think I did anything. Oh, did I tell you guys about how I thought Zook broke my nose recently? No, how'd that happen? She headbutt me. Oh, that's Because Kona jumped on. I went to sit with Zook, and Zook growled because Kona was right there. And Kona, like, got startled and jumped on my back and tried to go, like, over my shoulder. And uh, Zook went to, like, yell at her because she likes to yell at her and show her teeth but not bite her. And she just, like, slammed her head, and she got me instead. And my nose started gushing blood, and I'm sitting there, and I, and I didn't even yell at her. I was just like, you fucker. And I got up, and I was just, like, trying to clean myself up. And I wasn't even mean to her then. So, yeah. I have a scar on the back of my leg now from from Mandy. Where um, So as we're getting her used to outside in, like, the electronic fence, um, we pretty much have her on like a long leash so if she starts running it's something that we can grab onto so we were getting ready to go inside and it was me mandy and my mom and mandy's just walking normal she's you know minding her own business and for whatever reason she decided to cut back into the left like a wide receiver that was called in motion and she took off running and it was a twine lead and it gave me one of the the gnarliest rope burns on the back of my leg which is now oh my god left a scar they're such cute little shitters that's another one your little shitter that's another good one just came to my head in her, like for her I didn't get mad because it's like she really didn't do anything wrong she didn't know better she was just doing her own thing like I only get mad at Billy because 
Like, Bailey is very mischievous, even though she is 10 years old. Um, she eats socks if you leave them, or she'll eat mittens. And, like, I had had my socks in my pocket, um, and I sat on the couch, and she dug them out, and she was able to eat one, and then she's sitting there with the second one, and it's like, what are you doing? It's like, yeah. you look, it's like, you get fed enough, and you get enough treats. You don't be, need to be eating a sock. Yeah, yeah. Zuke, Zuke did that at first. She was big on socks. And Kona, a good amount too, but, like, honestly, it did help, like, I'm, I'm around her. I could stop her from stuff or, like, the bitter apple spray. If you spray it on something, she won't go near it. Um, Zuke, I didn't have to do, like, any of that stuff with, but she was still devious. She, they were very big on um, slippers and moccasins. So you leave them at the front door or the back door. And, like, I always have, like, slides or slippers and things. So it's easier to, like, run outside because I, I can't stand, especially, like, if you're wearing socks, I, I can't stand socks outside. Just put on shoes. Do something. And um, the Sherpa in, like, slippers and things like that, they have toys like that. So they both really thought it was toys. And Ugg boots. So they went after those in Ugg boots a lot. Kona actually put a hole in a pair of Ugg boots. They were like really old and they were left on the stairs and they were not like put to the side. They were just like sitting there and she took it as a challenge. So the dogs, as you would be like, all right, go upstairs and you didn't follow them. Um, one of them would like scoop up the boot, both when they were like when we first got them and they'd bring the boot upstairs. Then you'd go like hear them chewing something and you're like, what do you have? And there they are on top of like a slipper or a boot or something like that. But they like, figured out the difference like that's not it might be soft but it's not your toy aren't dogs and animals lovely creatures I love the best. honestly it's the only reason I've stayed sane during all this is having Franklin to to call a little shit face when he when he acts up but yeah um oh my gosh we're going on such a such a pet tangent I don't even know where we where we go next now well I think this is actually a perfect spot for an ad break um, after oh, this. Yeah. Good, good thing we'll, it's we'll talk some uh, some numbers and some math. Tommy which Bahama. Is... With the good ideas. It's your new name, Tommy Bahama. <laughs> With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at Marines.com. And just like that, we're back. Um, thank you for joining us for uh, Pets Weekly, where we talk about all types of animals and 
things of that nature. Um, next, we're going to talk about how you can, uh, you know, decide to dress your animals and what type of collars to get them. Um, or we could talk about the collective bargaining agreement, which I think is kind of important. Maybe. We're going back to the Olympics. That's all I really give a shit about. Although, John Toro is apparently not a fan of professionals playing at the Olympics, which I don't... I get that argument. I understand it. I understand that argument, but John Tortorella also doesn't like joy and happiness. Maybe that was <laughs> his theory for the World Cup? What? Like, not having really professional players, considering all the good people that were left off the roster? Hmm. No Phil I mean, Kessel, no Keith Yandel. I, it's like... Oh, it, it's tough. The Olympic conversation is tough because, especially for like anyone in his age group, anyone older than us, because professionals weren't allowed and they fell in love with watching Olympic sports, which were amateurs, and it makes sense. But like, there has to, yeah, you, they want some sort of line drawn, and it's so messy because then if, if you're saying there can't be professionals for this sport, then what about runners? And what about uh, literally almost everyone? that you can think of like as a big name athlete became a professional in what they did. They're not just Olympic athletes. They're Olympic athletes and professional track runners or professional ice skaters. Like there's other things they compete in too. So like yeah. it, it just gets blurry. But I mean like I see the argument for both sides. I get it. I totally understand like if someone doesn't want professionals in it and they want it to be amateurs – but then you need it that all countries abide by that because as we saw with the last one with like professional KHL players and Swedish Hockey yeah, League players. It gets all fucked up. Yeah. And also, my my gripe is just the fact that last Olympics was skipped because I think they fucked so many players out of potentially their last opportunity. Obviously, like Henrik Lundqvist was someone that stands out. Like to play for their country at the Olympic level when we all damn well knew that they were going to go back. And yes, they could use like the Olympics as, a, as leverage with the CBA. Like, we'll give you this if we get that. But we all know the NHL wanted to go there because it's in China and they've been angling for China the last few years. Like, this is not something like groundbreaking. Like, of course they wanted it. So, like, at the time of skipping the last one, you knew it was just going to be one out. So you're only screwing that one group of players. My whole thing is like, as someone who's largely a consumer, especially of like the Olympics, do I want to watch like Matt Gilroy and like Bobby Butler on Team USA? No, like James Wisniewski, guys who are no longer in the NHL, and like like you said, it, it you have to make it so it's level. So every there can be no professionals on any team. Like, whatever the rule is, everyone has to follow it. And, like, abiding by that rule when other nations don't is just... It, it sets the stage for embarrassment. And I, I don't know. It makes me sad. Yeah, I mean, I think it was something that was pretty obvious to have Olympic participation. And I really hope that the players didn't use it as a concession piece. Um, so... Yeah, but I would say also, I mean, I was kind of surprised that this deal happened as quickly as it did. I feel that the players wouldn't have had any more potential leverage than they do now because, face it, um, this was tied to the return to play agreement. And 
the players are the ones who are, are assuming a lot of the risk. I mean, people just say, well, there's financial risks involved um, with, with not having a season. But like we talked about you know, last week, Mike, we have to be cognizant of the people that could get sick and, and, and potentially having long-lasting things. Um, but again, it was uh, financially, that's what it came down to because the players were very deeply troubled, worried, and afraid of the almighty escrow, um, which is something that Shana is very familiar with, which is why I wanted to have her on our next podcast so that she could just sort of talk about its impact and if she feels that this was a a good deal for the players. Um, so escrow is something I feel like no one... Anyone that criticizes it doesn't fully understand it. And maybe I I don't want to like come off as like a pompous asshole saying that, but like I, I honestly do think it's the case. If you have a 50-50 revenue split, you need to ensure that there's a 50-50 revenue split. If teams are towards the higher end of the cap ceiling, that split for the players is going to be greater than the owners and they have to reconcile it someplace. If every team was closer to the salary floor which is never going to happen because that's not how it works in the NHL, you know, um, then the owners would have to owe players back to the money most, uh, the play, the owners would have to owe money back to the players. So there has to be some sort of balancing act and that's what escrow is. It balances it out. The problem with it is sometimes the hockey related revenue um, projections, which this is all based on, aren't accurate enough that it becomes a bigger gap and a bigger disparity than anyone could want because they thought it would be more and it wasn't that. So now the players have to make up for it by taking money out of their salaries. And it also does suck with the structuring of it, how it's taking out of like signing bonuses versus regular salary. And it has to be made up somewhere. So it might fall on other players to make up for it if so many have these like lofty signing bonuses. So there's a lot of complications with it. And I think that right there does create this like tension because the players are losing money giving it to the owners, these billionaires, while well, the players are just millionaires. And like, yes, it's petty, but I, I do understand it to an extent because it does suck when you are the product. It wouldn't happen without you. And yes, every owner can sit there and say every player is replaceable and that they could find somebody new. And yes, that's all well and good and true. But the fact is, when you talk about the players as a collective, which is how it needs to be done, you know, they're not they they are everything to this league. They're they're literally everything. So if they wanted a greater share like they had in the past, it would make more sense even still having a salary cap. But yeah. Basically it just needs to be balanced. And now things are gonna be totally tricky because they're not gonna be making the revenue that they could be. There's no fans in the stands. There's probably less merch being bought. They there's so many things that go into this projection that can't be met this year. So they are capping escrow. I think it's 20% next year, um, 14 to 18% the following year, um, 10% after that, and then it's like 6% in the last three years. So it does help that, um, you know, they know what they're getting into when you sign a contract with everything, you know exactly what you're going to lose to escrow um, at that cap at max. But like, it's a necessary evil until you change the 50-50 split, which they did not do. My biggest thing was if I were the players, 
I would have fought for a broader definition of what is hockey-related revenue. Yes. Um, and I think their downfall was not pushing for Seattle's expansion fee to be considered hockey-related revenue because that is $600 million or more. Um, I, th- I think it, it – I know what – I think Vegas's was – Five hundred, and I think Seattle's is going to be a little bit more. Um, that that's a little over half a billion dollars that's going into into this pool of money that needs to be um, generated. And I'm going to be very interested to see how teams look to get creative. And one thing that I'm trying to find out, but I've not been successful yet, is if there is any publicly um, reported information on merchandise sales and, and what part they make up in terms of hockey-related revenue because I personally think one really fun way to inject money and inject interest is since the um, the teams have gone to, to the Adidas jerseys, not every team has had a third jersey. Not every team has had a special jersey yet. And I think you just release a bunch of third jerseys, a bunch of special one-off jerseys. I mean, my whole thing is with the TV deal, you reband or rebrand Wednesday night rivalries to Wacky Wednesday or, you know, Throwback Thursday and you have really cool jerseys sort of similar to um what the NFL did uh with like Color Rush. Um but yeah, I I am I'm just skeptical that the that the players sort of got took to the cleaners here. I know a lot of them say that they're happy, but the biggest thing for me, and, and you went over what the escrow numbers are, are going to be, it's taking a lot of faith in the NHL saying we will get revenue back to where it was and exceed it. Um, because part of the way that you're sort of growing revenue is not only with, with the TV deal and, and and other things like that, but player salaries factor into hockey related revenue. And if you're going to have a flat cap for three years, that means players like Petrangelo, Krug, Hall, they're not going to get these big fat deals that infuse money. And then you're going to have teams that have really good young players that instead of signing them long term, they're going to have to to give these these bridge deals, um, which, which sort of goes to uh, the next thing that I want wanted to talk about. But I'll, I'll give you know Mike a chance if he had anything to say um, on the CBA and if he was surprised yeah. at all the, how it came together. <laughs> Sorry, I just made a, a strange animal noise because I, I literally have nothing to add other than it really. I have the same anxiety you do, Tom, that I'm worried on behalf of the players because I feel like they're going to foot the bill for this. Um, and that they... I'm, I was also very surprised this came together kind of as quickly as it did. But I feel like this was players feeling like, oh, you know, we don't have a lot of choice because of the revenue lost here. But And, like, I know analysts were saying, hey, the players knew they were negotiating from... They had a little more leverage, so they got the Olympics back because that's obviously something that is important to the players, but gosh, like, how why do the owners need that much of a share? <laughs> I just, I don't understand and, you know, like listening to Ryan Kessler and other people talk about it, how much 
of hockey-related revenues tied up to ticket sales and, you know, how much of that was lost with this year um, with everything happening. And then, of course, like, you know, return to play, how much money is really going to get back, put back into the coffers from, from you know, the planes and everything. It just, it makes me anxious on behalf of the players. Um, and, you know, I'm happy we have labor peace uh, just because it would be a tremendous headache if we didn't but like you know all the things you already said just think about for example like Panarin's contract like you know thinking directly of the Rangers it's we're not going to see another guy sign a Panarin level contract for a little while I think it's just not going to happen because of this current landscape of the CBA and also the, you know the, the locked cap Shana say something smarter than what I said no, uh, I wanted to add in also, like, you mentioned the Panarin thing. We saw these players preparing for a lockout, which now they don't have. So these contracts with these heavy signing bonuses and things like that that are more buyout-proof, you know, maybe we won't see them, which benefits the owners too. You know, they don't need to be prepping for a lockout because now there isn't going to be one right now. Um, and the other thing is, like, there are small details in it that I think are interesting, like, the fact that a player can waive his no trade clause and before that if he waived it once the team that takes on the player can be like well we're not going to honor that if i remember correctly i know pk suban someone that stands out waving it to go to nashville and now it no longer existed because nashville chose not to honor it which is why they could trade him um i want to say carl Haglin as well because if I, if I remember right he had one with anaheim waved it to go to pittsburgh and then could be moved a little bit more freely from there i think that i don't think that's exactly fair to do if a player battled for that because you know to get that no trade clause it wasn't easy and he probably had to give some concessions elsewhere and now yeah he had to leave money they, on the table to get the clause yeah right like it it needs to be more of a discussion or not at all like you can't just have it like oh it doesn't exist anymore that player uprooted his life to sign to go to this new team and agree to it so you need to respect that because there's a reason they have it in the first place unless there's some sort of other concession like there should be something if a team chooses not to honor it maybe there should be a negotiation like maybe they should say you know we'll add five hundred thousand dollars a year to your salary a million dollars or you'll get a bonus for having it waived like yes and what if what if you're the player that went from playing in florida to california like you're losing even more money now because of the tax situation. Like, yes, you're still getting taxed on the road, but, you know, it, it's a big difference going from 13% state income tax to from nothing. So I think those are things to keep in mind too. But the benefit for sure of having labor peace is if in theory this season didn't resume and then you have next year and then you have this all happen the following year, it's such a blow to hockey and everything that you're building. And it really is tough when you're trying to bring in a new team and things like that. And you were considering the World Cup of Hockey, which you couldn't do because of, you know, the potential for a lockout, which would have been just such awkward timing. Like, you don't want to ruin everything hockey's built. And you don't want to be looking around like, you look at baseball right now. And we, everyone was saying it. If you don't get baseball this year because they can't come to an agreement and their agreements were not over health and safety as much as money and things like that with the owners in particular... You're not getting baseball for a long time because there's probably not going to be labor peace. You want it that they come to an agreement so it's not just like stop and go that you just kill your momentum. Like it hurts the players. It hurts 
the owners, it hurts everyone. You don't want to be wasting time in your career for a potential lockout. So it's nice that they had the time to do it now and they took it. So maybe it's not the perfect CBA. I don't think we'll ever have the perfect CBA. And there's a lot you can pick at with it and rightfully so. But I think as a whole, it's a good thing that it doesn't fuck any players out of anything and out of like losing time and it doesn't hurt the sport as a whole, which will obviously impact things like hockey related revenue, which everyone knows that they're going to need. So moving forward, um, there are going to be, from a Rangers perspective, there are some players who are going to catch the short end of the stick. Um, Ryan Strom's an RFA. Tony D'Angelo's an RFA. Georgiev's an RFA. And you have Hank Mm -hmm. in the last year of his $8.5 million deal, although he's only getting paid 5.5. And and as Mike said, uh, Lemieux, who's in RFA. Um, At this current number, the Rangers have, let's see, they have, wow, they do not have a lot of cap space. They have $14,391,867. and that's a roster size of 15. So I ask you, Shana, and, and then Mike, you can go next. Um, does this sort of change how we thought that they were going to handle things? I think a lot of people would have assumed that D'Angelo was going to get a long-term contract. Uh, Strom might have gotten you know, some type of deal, not quite a fat contract, but sort of keep Panarin happy. Um, I, I think that we're going to see a lot of people leave. Do you? I think you have to see something. When when Chris Carter was signed to his contract, I think everyone had thoughts on it, what they were going to do. It was so significant, so on and so forth. And it was like, this is actually manageable if, and that was the if, if the cap goes up as expected, if this increases as expected, you have the new TV deal. Yes, there are, there are positives there. There can be cap space down the line. This could be okay. You don't have to panic about the future of the team. It could be okay. And then this happened, which obviously was not predictable at the time of the signing. You know, like as close as it was to it, I don't think anyone could have, could have anticipated things getting as bad as they did, as quickly as they did, and sports, and everything, and chaos. So, um, it's something that every single team is going to have to deal with, and I think that's what makes it that much trickier. Because you can't suddenly say, well, we're going to try to get this team to pick up our shitty contracts that we can we can no longer afford to pay. Because every team is going to have those contracts that they can no longer afford to pay. And that's why it's essential that um, the draft does take place after everything, and player movement can happen because it takes place after everything. And I know for a minute it was a consideration of happening, happening sooner it just couldn't work that way. Like you need it that you can move players when you're having these cap issues because it's so much easier if you're trying to alleviate yourself of cap to trade for draft picks and future prospects and things like that. And you don't want to necessarily hurt your team when you're striving for something by moving right now players for cap space, but it's something that literally everybody has to do. So it's going to be tricky to navigate no matter what. And I think that you know, we're going to see a lot of teams having to do things that they didn't anticipate having to do. Um, maybe, like, maybe D'Angelo is moved. And it's even, like, hard to just look at it and be like, it, he's a casualty of the cap. Like, it has to be a deal that works if you're moving a player who's shown his value. Maybe a player like Strom can't be extended. Maybe it does make sense to trade Gergiev because he's going to look for a raise and then you're going to have, 
you know, issues down the line. Maybe it's just better to recoup assets or tie him to another asset, which generally I don't think I'd advise to do. I don't think you're getting as much when you're bundling assets. It's better just go separate. But um, maybe that is something that has to work to, to clear some cap space. Like there's so many things. And a, a player like Lemieux, I don't think is going to see a significant raise based on what he did this year that I don't think that necessarily he'd have to be a casualty. But if you can move smaller pieces like that, maybe, maybe they say they don't need to extend Jasper Foss and they can find someone from within that's going to be making league minimum. Like it's not to diminish their value. It's just the cuts are going to have to come and they're going to have to come from literally every team, which is going to make it that much harder to deal with. The big thing to me is this, this upcoming season is the crazy season. And it's, Exceptionally crazy because Shattenkirk is 6.1 million of dead space because of the buyout. And like, you know, I think if you've listened to this show, you know how all three of us feel about the Shattenkirk buyout. And of course, this is very much a hindsight thing like, oh, it looks even stupider now, doesn't it? But, you know, no one knew this is what was going to happen. Everyone expected the cap to go up. But there's a ton of potential relief coming after next season, you know, with, with Stahl and Smith and Hank all coming off, but you do have another wave of RFAs, including Booch, and you have Heedel, you know, what contract does he get? You have Howden, you have Gautier, um, you have Lind- Lindgren in there as well, and that, like, all of those things are question marks, but the potential cap space opening up is promising. The problem really is that you have this many, you know, pending RFAs who have substantial roles on the team as it currently exists with Strom, D'Angelo, um, Georgiev, and, you know, also to some extent Lemieux, although he is, in my opinion, Lemieux is just a, you know, a fourth-line guy that gets moved around the lineup sometimes, and he's currently suspended on top of everything else, but... Like, I don't think the Rangers can afford to extend Jesper Faust. I think he's, it's a foregone conclusion that he's gone unless they can work some magic and create space up elsewhere. And I also think it's probably much more appealing now in some respects to move Georgiev and ride out this last bit of Hank's contract as opposed to the, you know, those who are thinking that there might be an option for the buyout here. I don't think they want that much dead space on the books when they know the cap's not going to change. And that's something that really impacts everything else. But like, to me, you should feel confident enough in Igor Shosturkin to move forward with him as your your starter. And looking at the, the question of what the hell do you do with Strom and D'Angelo, those are the big questions to me this offseason. You look at what's the best you can get for Georgiev, like Shana said, it's never a great idea to bundle your assets because you, you normally depreciate their value, but I think it goes without saying that Strom should be cheaper to keep around, but he's not as valuable on the ice as D'Angelo, and there should be a market for D'Angelo, and the question is what that market looks like and you know what, you know, what we can really get out of moving a guy who has you know, the off the ice, you know, polarizing effects that he does. It's not exactly a player that some teams might want to bring on depending on the market and everything else. But gosh, it, it really adds a giant monkey wrench into everything. Um, it's, 
I don't know what to expect because you know I'm of the opinion I don't even know if we're actually going to have hockey games. I don't think we should. Um, and you know you have to get into the whole like what happens. We don't really know what happens at the off season until these hockey games get finished and the cup is handed out and yada yada yada. Um, which is why like you know Brock Besser was saying like I don't think people should be talking about how I could be traded the trade deadlines over if people are a bunch of dicks. I'm like yeah I feel for you kid. Anyway, say something Tom. Something, Tom. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I think that the Rangers need to be very aggressive this offseason. And the reason I say that is because how that they are going about this rebuild, they clearly had a plan in place of this is what we were looking to do. And if you look at their cap situation, it's tight right now. You're going to get some temporary relief. Uh, after next season, no Hank, no Stahl, no Brendan Smith. But you're going to have to pay Booch. You're going to have to pay Heedle. You're going to have to uh, pay Igor. You're going to have a lot of people who you have to play uh, to pay. But you also need to improve the roster to be that of a cup contender, which is why the, the draft is going to be very important, making the most of the picks that they have. Um, obviously... If they were to lose in round one and get the first overall pick, that would completely change their um, their outlook. But I, I think the Rangers, and, and I've said this a number of times before, after every season they should be doing an audit of saying, okay, when we are a contender, who is our first line center? Who is our first line winger? Who is our first pair D? Who is our number one goaltender? They have some answers to that. Um but there are holes, and center is a big one. And as much as I love Mika Zibanejad, and I, I think he's been great, he is getting older, and he's going to need a new contract. You watch and, your mouth. I mean, I'm just being realistic, and they've not... Watch it. I'm watching it. He's my boy. He's all I have. I understand that, but like... They massacred they, my boy! They need to have some semblance of a plan, and I just would hate for the bottom to fall out before things get going. Um, but it, it will be interesting, and I assume that, well, not I assume, I know, this is going to be a problem for many teams around the league. I just hope that the Rangers are, are able to, to capitalize. And um, well, This makes the development of these all these prospects the Rangers have like the development of guys like Kravstov and and you know Kako, so much more important. You need you the the way to stay under the cap is to develop your own talent. And goodness gracious, is it more important than ever now? Um, looking at how tight things are going to get, like, whew. I mean, like you said, you know, these are guys who have to get paid. Like we talk about, you know, Cabo uh, Kako. We talk about you know Heedle and and like you said, Shesterkin. Um, like, those guys all do have to get paid. But, like, the good news is when you develop your own assets like that, you can you have much more say in what they get as opposed to bidding on them in the free, in, you know, free agency. And, gosh, I really, really hope things take a turn for the better in terms of what's happening specifically with the forward prospects because, um... You know, in terms of the guys who were in the system, it wasn't really promising this year. Uh, meaning the guys who were in the you know NHL, AHL level. Um, 
on the whole, I was kind of underwhelmed. So um, I hope that turns around. We'll see. Anything you'd like to add, Shayna? Yeah, I think like the point about developing their own players, like I think that's not only does it help you like control, not even control salaries, but have a better negotiating point, you know, when it's a familiar player and so on and so forth. But it lessens your need for free agency, which is like what you don't want to build your team around free agents. Obviously, if you can sign a player like a Panarin, like it's a game changer, but you need it that you have this core in place and then you fill in secondary roles with free agency, with depth players, with things like that. Like that's what you want to be able to use free agency for ideally, especially if you're a rebuilding team that you you're bringing in all these young players via trade or, you know, drafting your own and, you know, like the Adam Foxes or the Mika Zibanejads and getting in before they hit that they're before they hit their prime, you're making it better for yourself when you know that like not only when you have a cap situation but it's how you should be operating in general so it should force teams like the rangers and should force teams in general to try to abide by that a little bit more because it can be a more successful route and it can extend their window if that if they have um players that are like within their system that they can just keep building from it's certainly going to be interesting um, I'm going to try to be as optimistic as possible. Um, and, but real quick, because I had, I had wanted to ask you this, Shana, um, what were your thoughts on Lindy Ruff getting hired as the, uh, the head coach of the New Jersey devils? It's something of interest to you as, as, uh, because of, uh, behind the benches. Um, well, I think it's nice that he got another head coaching job. I think that, like, I don't... Hmm, I don't think Lindy Ruff was right for the role in the Rangers to start. I don't think that he's this, like, outstanding defensive coach and you can look back at what he's done with other teams and... Okay, thank thank you, Kona. Um, you can look at what he's done with other teams and, and question why he was in that role to begin with besides his reputation or relationship with you know, those in the hiring process. But, yeah, like, he he wasn't meant to be this defensive coach on a team that, it, it's not like it's all his fault. He walked into a shitty situation, and it, it did get worse, and, you know, you can look at his impact there on how their defensive situation got worse and how it didn't necessarily get better, you know, under a new head coach with a new system, and you can deflect the blame to the head coach because it's his system, and, you know, the context is very important. You have to look at everything. Um, but I just... Hmm, I don't think that he's solely to blame for everything, but I, I do think that we can look at some things and question his role, his responsibility from, you know, the player's execution going down. You can go, well, what adjustments did he make to work with that? Because it obviously it's on the players, but it's on the coach to know what's working, what's not, and how to fix it. And I think that's where there was a breakdown. You can make questions, you know, have questions about certain pairs that were put together and for how long that they were put together. And, you know, the, the, and, and the penalty kill. The penalty kill I can have a million questions about. So I think this could be a good thing. I am curious about Gord Murphy because I think he's the obvious choice when – when him and Knobloch were hired, I think they were the obvious choices to not just coach in Hartford, but to see where they could go 
which again, no offense to Davy Quinn, it's just, you know, a lot of teams do want to promote from within if they can. And when you're rebuilding team, it can make sense to have someone that worked with the kids to know what to do and grow with them together. So it's interesting because they came in so close to each other, Knobloch and Quinn. But it, you know, Gord Murphy has experience working with younger defensemen in Philadelphia. So it's not like it's a total stretch. I don't think that we're going to see this huge difference in the defense or penalty kill during this five-game series. It's not the time. It, it's the time for tweaks. It's not the time for a full revamp. And we also know it's Quinn's system, so there's only so much you can expect to be revamped. You know, it's still his. It's just will another coach work with it a little bit better? Um, so I'm curious if he is held on to for next year because I think that's when we'll see more of a difference, or if they'll look elsewhere and. It's, there isn't a right or wrong answer right now because we don't know who else is like an option and available and things like that. But um, yeah, it's it's interesting. I think Lindy Ruff is better with teams offensively. So it just didn't work out as a defensive coach in New York. And, you know, good for him. He's someone that is very well-liked and well-respected. I was very surprised to see him hired in New Jersey. I was, you know, there when you see like someone like Gallant around and I know there are reasons that Gallant was let go in Florida and let go in Vegas but I was a little bit curious to see like it not being him but um or or even uh Elaine Nazardine I thought I thought he did you know a solid job with New Jersey to end the year so I, I'm definitely a little surprised but I think it can work out for the Rangers if I put that as nicely as possible I think you did and we're we're gonna get to bannering points in a second but I don't know if I've said it um, on the podcast before I know I've um, you know like in our slack I've mentioned it but like when I look at Chris Knobloch and just basically his background like he's clearly the next one it's the Rangers getting him when they did it was in a way it's if this whole David Quinn thing doesn't work out um, Knobloch is someone that can can grow with this team um you know not that i'm pushing quinn out but when i i was very surprised when i look at chris knobloch he's 41 years old but he's been coaching since 2006 he was an assistant uh in the whl he became a head coach in the whl in 2010 um you know he had a really good run with the erie otters coach connor mcdavid Men made the jump to Philly as an assistant, uh, and, and then Hartford. So, um, yeah, Chris Knobloch is certainly someone that I think that the Rangers value highly. Um, but that that's obviously a conversation for um, another day. Um, we do have a few bannering points. Um, we will start um, with the first one that comes from Avery the Great. Uh, assuming the Rangers don't win the lottery and their pick is in the teens, what does that pick plus something else, potentially the Hurricanes pick, assume it's in the 20s, or D'Angelo, Strom, Gorgiev, buy them in a trade? Could they move up? Would that make sense? Hmm. Well, from like from what I've heard, you know, it's always the question of what is, you know, where does that drop off in terms of, you know, the talent happen? And, you know, from what I've heard and read, a lot of people seem to think this is a deep draft, but that means really like the the, the top of the draft, like the first, 
you know, one through eight and one through nine are very, very special players, and there's something of a drop-off. Um, it's because of that that, you know, you have to ask, well, if the Rangers don't get that first overall, could they maybe trade into uh, getting one of those players who's, you know, just maybe, you know, a tier above or a cut above the rest, and I don't know. It all depends on who you're trying to make a deal with and what their needs are and how everything lines up, right? Like... I know that's kind of a cop-out of an answer, but that's really the, the pragmatic look at it, is it's very dependent on all the other factors. Is it possible for them to move up? Absolutely. Especially if you have a pick in the mid-teens and you can move an asset and maybe that team, you know, is in more of a win-now state um, and, you know, the Rangers can offer something, um, you know, in terms of Georgiev or who the hell knows, D'Angelo, whatever that is appealing and they can put together a deal that involves multiple assets that works for the Rangers, works for the other team, but it's um, it's tough to say without knowing all the details, right? I mean, I would say this piggybacks off of what we were just talking about in terms of how tight the cap is, where any deal you make, there's going to be an element of, okay, can you take my bad salary? Oh, I'll give you my bad salary. Um, so... I think we're going to see a completely new market inefficiency of trading at the draft of, of how people can be crafty and, and weaponize cap space even more. Um, you know, Ottawa is obviously a team that loves to take on cap hits to get to the floor and not pay a lot in salary. Um, but I would say that conservatively, it, it's it's going to be it's hard to give an answer because we don't know what the market's going to be. We don't know if there's going to be big free agents who decide to say we're taking a one-year deal and then that opens other avenues of, oh, I was counting on signing a Petrangelo. I was counting on signing a Taylor Hall. Now I need to go to the to the trade market. Shana? Sorry, I had to... I had Kona, like going wild so i missed the last like minutes just skip me oh, yeah okay so basically <laughs> all it was is the quite like do can you the rangers trade up in the draft if they don't get the first overall is the short answer um could they trade up in the draft they could in theory but i just don't see them i don't think i see them doing that unless there's something I don't I don't see any team doing that unless they say here take a huge chunk of salary that you can't fucking afford so I just don't see it happening I maybe if they move if they're like slotted like I don't know 14th and they move to like ninth but like I don't see them moving up up yeah I don't see them moving up into like the top three top four I think if the, if it would be it would be hopping a couple spots and then there's a lot of little things tied to it that makes it complicated. A lot of people talk about moving up in the draft and this is something you and I looked at you know, last draft, Shane. I was like, it doesn't happen very often, right? Like teams don't do this super often. Um, right. You know, the Rangers have done it obviously to, you know, with like you know, moving up for Keandre and stuff but uh, it's, it's not... It, common occurrence for teams to to make move assets and you know pay essentially pay to move up the draft board you know leapfrog some teams that you 
are convinced are going to take the prospect that you have your heart set on. And you have to ask yourself, what is a reasonable cost for doing that? And when you're going to move something, you know, in, in terms of an asset, like someone who has a contract or a cap hit or will need a new contract, you're going to find a lot less buyers because of the state of the salary cap being kind of fixed for the next few years. So it even more complicated than it normally would be is the short answer, I guess. It's fair. Next question comes from Jason Silverman. Assuming play resumes, do you predict there will be changes in style of play, minimizing physical contact? Will there be less checking, fewer scrums after the whistle, a penalty for intentional spitting, more subdued celebrations, or does play remain the same? I think it's going to be sloppy That's a and good therefore, question. unfortunately, physical. Like the short training camp, one preseason game, and you think about how games start. I'm. If a player spits on another player during this, they should be suspended for fucking life. Um, in terms of, you know, spitting on the bench, I know they want to discourage those things. I don't know how you can effectively police those things. Like, who... Like, how do you pe- penalize those things? Like, you think of all the goalies who, uh, like, sw- you know, swill water around in their mouth and spit it out, like... Hockey is a terrible sport for this, Tom. You and I talked about this like several weeks ago. How, like all the snot rockets and spitting and all the crazy shit and smelling salts that happen on the bench just all the time with mouth guards falling out and being tucked in the gloves and all this like, it's just it's a it's a recipe for disaster. And a lot of those things are habitual. They're things you do without thinking of it. Like, you know, touching your face how many times a day? You don't even realize you're doing it. And that's if it's something you've built up at a habit while playing hockey like it's very hard to consciously derail yourself from those patterns because humans are creatures of pattern recognition that's how we work um, you know we do things and we keep doing them that's why you know with like free throw shooters in the NBA why do they always have the same routine well that's because that's how they train themselves to do it um, similar thing for a guy waiting to go on for a shift or after a shift, you know, taking a big chug of Gatorade or whatever the hell and spitting out some water or whatever the hell. Um, I would expect things to be physical, but I also think, like, are fights going to happen? Like, you have to ask these questions, right? That's why this is such a good question. I would hope that common sense uh, prevails here, but because hockey is happening or is being scheduled to happen in the first place, I don't think we're going to find a lot of common sense available. Yeah, I agree with that. I just think, I think that it's too, you, you don't have enough time to change your style of play. Like, you know what I mean? Like you mentioned it, you, you, there's so few time that you're going to come in and I, I would expect things to be scrappy and whatever until you find your footing and get back to that skill game or whatever it is that you're trying to play. Um, I think that I think that, you know, scrums should be discouraged, but they're going to happen. And we see hitting rise in the playoffs, but, you know, you don't always see fighting as much because you don't want to put your team at risk by taking a penalty or being thrown out of a game and things like that. Like, it's too intense. Um, If I'm the referees, I try to discourage all scrums as much as possible and break them up quicker. If you can break them up quicker, I think that should be uh, something everyone strives to do. And if someone does spit lick or do anything like that intentionally fucking suspend them you know they, they should 
it, it was a problem. It was warned. It's been discussed. It's not like it's something new. It shouldn't be in the game at all. And then when you talk about it either, it's like, and you're talking about it now, like, it's that much more serious that you should just, I don't know, like, be a decent human being and don't be disgusting. Like, there's too much risk. And not only are you risking you or your teammates, you're risking half the goddamn league that's in the same city. So, you know, I, I just don't think we're going to see major changes, but I think that's something that's, like, a necessary um, line in the sand if you're going to draw one somewhere. Like, I don't expect that all of a sudden we don't see physical play. I think it would be nice if the referees could try to limit it, limit it but um, you have to draw the line in the sand with the spitting and shit. Yeah, that sort of stuff I don't think we're going to see, um, but I would be lying if I didn't think that there's going to be some hesitancy to start and then someone's going to get laid the fuck out and then it's going to be like, all right, it's it's on. Uh, now, we're, you know, coming out for blood, full body checking, you know, hip checks. Like, oh, that might be something we see more of because you're pretty much – you're turning your face, you're not getting in close, you're just pretty much sticking your ass out and, and putting someone, you know, you know, ass over tea kettle. Um, but yeah, I mean, it's going to be playoff hockey. Everyone is coming to, you know, they're, they're taking the risk of playing. They're going to give it their all. They're just no spitting, no licking. Brad Marchand, um, no, which is dumb stupidity. And the last question comes from Statboy Steven. If the Rangers lose and do not get the first overall pick, which team would you prefer to win the second lottery? Maybe a top three. Personally, it would be Minnesota, Winnipeg, Arizona for me in that order. Three teams who haven't won a cup yet. Um, I don't know. I mean, I don't want to think about that. Um, I can agree with... Minnesota and um, you know Winnipeg and Arizona because those are those are three teams that could really use a dynamic player that would be nice and help them. Um, I just hope it's no one in the Rangers division. Um, I hope it's you know I don't want it to be Pittsburgh. I do not want it to be no. Chicago. I do no. not want it to be Montreal. Uh, um, Edmonton also can't get it. They've had yeah, too many. Fuck Edmonton. We've gotten too many. Too many. First cracks at the pinata. They don't get it. They shouldn't get it. We don't need another star player to wall away in obscurity in, in Edmonton. I want Arizona. Get let it. They got puppies. They got terrible jerseys, but you know what? God love them. They're trying. Dallas could be fun. Dallas is like an older team that could definitely use like a breath of fresh air to go along like Mira Heiskanen, and I think that could be cool. It'd be and... fun to have Zook help develop Lafreniere. In Minnesota, I guess. That's fun, too. I don't know. Join Kaprizov. That, that would be interesting, actually. That could make the wild fun. I'm trying to think who... I Yeah, it can't be Chicago. This whole, no. this whole entire thing benefits Chicago far too much that I don't want to see them... Like, I maintain... And I know I'm going to hear shit, but I don't think the Rangers should be in the playoffs. It should be 20 teams, and the big market should be out of it because they, you know... You need to draw the line somewhere, and I think 24 is a little bit much. But I think it obviously benefits Chicago a ton, so they're the team I just I don't want to see them win it. Um, I think it would be cool to see a team, like, in a way, like, see Tampa do it. I'm, I'm sorry. Like, yeah. I, I think I think it would be cool to see, like, a, Tam, a team like Tampa, like, win it all because, like, I like how they've built their team, and I think it would be rewarding. Yeah. So it's, like, 
you know, they've trended towards skill and things like that. I think that's, like, important, too. So, yeah, that's my pick. Anyone? Well, who do you or want Columbus. To first Columbus would be fun. Good things for Columbus would be fun. I know that they're, like, a division rival of, of the Rangers and so on, but... I don't know. I feel like their team like has like the Rangers, though they never have. It's like Carolina. Like I'm yeah, putting together a preview. Like the Rangers and Carolina in the same division. There's like the only thing that makes the series like a little tantalizing is the fact that we've traded with Carolina three times since last April. Like and the Stalls are brothers. Yeah, and the Stalls are brothers. Stalls are brothers. Uh, but like, what else is there? Is there like? There's no like history <laughs> you know what i mean it's it's like you know for the rangers, rangers and columbus. columbus you have panarin and nash yeah there's the big trades and doobie but, and nash yeah and Sard and, yeah but like you know that's not really that's just a trading partner like the rangers have the same thing with arizona with all the i agree with arizona. it doesn't make you rivals it just makes you like you have each other's phone number on speed dial So before we close, if the Rangers do end up with the number one pick, is it 100% Lafreniere? Or do you think about Quentin Byfield? I love... Here's my thing. Like, Byfield is so interesting to me. And I think the the fact that Lafreniere is like almost a full year older than Byfield doesn't get talked about enough. Um, and obviously, you know, that's a huge deal in terms of just development and where they are. And Byfield is just like... God, he's like the sort of player you would make in like make a player in NHL. He's you know he's giant. He's can he's a monster. He can, skate, he can make plays like he can drive to the net. And he's like oh my god, is he like his toolkit is amazing. Um, with that being said, I really really like Lafreniere. <laughs> it's it's tough, but like I think it's him. Um, but I. For the for all the contrarians who are like, yeah, but what about Bi-? like I get it, I really do get it because, you know, you think about what he, you know, if he fully develops, then you think of like a guy that big who can skate, who can do all the other things, like, like an Eric Lindros kind of mold player in his prime. It's like holy hell, those players are so rare um, that can have all those little traits that weave together so well and that's it looks like that's what he has but you know Lafreniere just everything is there everything you you want there from an elite scoring you know winger I think is there and a guy who can really influence an offense take over a team be the face of a franchise he like he checks off a shit ton of boxes and for because of that I lean towards him but um, you know, I like a lot of guys really in the top eight or nine. It's interesting because, like, you know, it, it gets so much more interesting to me between pick three and pick nine um, because I really feel like it's Lafreniere than Byfield. Then it's kind of a, uh, you know, you have really open, engaging debates about who goes where, and it's fascinating because all those guys are really good um, in that frame. So, yeah. I'll take either is the short answer. Either one sounds good. Just like, you know, those Kako and Hughes. Who do you want? Either or. Agreed. Well, I think we talked about a lot of good things. We had a lot of fun. We had a uh, wide ranging of ideas, uh, you know. 
Uh, thank you as always for Mike for doing the show. Uh, and thank existing you. and being you and being perfect. Yes, oh Mike. Christ. Mike. Mike is a very special individual. I'm not gonna lie. This whole time I've been thinking about the tater tots I have waiting for me. As much as I love both of you, they've been tater waiting tots. for a freaking hour. I know. I, I'm gonna have to heat them back up. Yeah, you're gonna have to heat them back up. They're gonna be soggy and shitty. What are you doing? You should have been eating them while we were soggy. recording. I couldn't get up. I have to open the door. <sighs> well, I also like to thank Shana for joining us. Appreciate her taking time out of soggy a very busy schedule. <laughs> My busy, um, my busy fashion designing career. I thank you guys. And I'd like to also thank all of our patrons. Uh, a Six Foot Gap, Adam Naholik, Ian Gaspar, Amriel Kistner, Andre Chicagoff, Andy White, Anthony Viola, Arch Williams, Beezer, Ben Pierney, Garner Osterheim, Bob Kawa, Bobby Callahan, Captain America, Chris Abibi, Chris Lucas, Chris Marco Trigiano, Clark Carroll, Daniel Jazen, David L. Singer, Fancy Lawrence, Frank Menino, George Littman, Igor Zavlovsky, James Dangles, Jamie Bushold, Jeff Owen, Jermaine Francis, John Predzapelski, John Reppy, Jordan Sassone, Justin Walsh, Keith Franchillo, Kevin Mead, Kush Tastic, Kyle Napolitano, Matt Bader, Matthias Olson, Michael Kanick, Michael Marcus, Michael Silvers, Nick Antropov, Nikolai Hoffman, Panarin 2020, Patrick Landolt, Perennial Powerhouse, Sammy Vogel, Seidenberg, Sean, Stieg Bialbeck, Stink Fleeman, Tall Guy Rob, The Eric Carlson, The Ninja's Ninja, The Tin Man, Tori from Manhattan, and Trevor Kempner. Uh, thank you everyone for supporting uh, the podcast. Uh, it really means a lot. Um, Mike sent out some stickers to those who... Um, yeah. Sent out a new batch of stickers. I think like seven or eight of you have stickers coming. And to our one patron who's in Switzerland who has stickers coming, I, I gotta get an international stamp. And that'll happen when I feel more comfortable going to the post office. Um, so maybe soon. Yeah. Or maybe I'll just wrap my. I know that one, right, Tom? Yes. It's. Uh post office can be an interesting place at, at this time um we're working on some also some new stickers some more to come on that um but uh we appreciate you know everyone listening to the show uh we're going to be off next week um i'm going to be taking some time off so i'm not going to be around um but you know uh we'll we'll be back the week after that and yeah. we hope you're all well and stay healthy and happy uh, wear a mask, and uh, we will talk to you again soon. And thank Take you care. for joining us, Shana. Thank you. Bye, thank Shana. You, Tom, for being Goodbye. such a good co-host, buddy. Thank you, Mike. And as always, Take Joe is a well. Joe is a well.